in the mountains of the uh, Tennessee-Alabama border, just about six miles from downtown Chattanooga, is a popular tourist attraction that you may have heard of. It's called Rock City Gardens. Has anybody been to Rock City Gardens in here? Uh, A handful of you. Okay, very good. If you go there, you'll find a 4,100-foot walking trail that showcases these soaring rock formations and lush gardens that include over 400 different species of wildflowers and plants. And other features you'll find there are the Swing Along Bridge that spans nearly 200 feet over a rocky canyon, and Lookout Point over Lover's Leap, where with binoculars, I'm told, you can see seven different states from one lookout point at about 1,700 feet above sea level. But it's the extremely narrow cleft in the mountain pass at one point of the trail that I'm particularly interested in this morning. A place called, appropriately enough, Fat Man Squeeze. (laughs) At about 30 feet high and about 45 feet long and only about 20 inches wide at its nearest point, Fat Man Squeeze is not for the faint of heart. You search online and you can find all manner of people telling their adventure stories of going there and trying to make it through and mostly making it through, some not even trying because they're afraid to even give it a try. Um, When my wife Rebecca was 10, she tells me that she was there with her family and she tells the story of seeing the sign or hearing the, 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 the name Fat Man Squeeze and being terrified that her own father wouldn't make it through. Now, in fairness, her father wasn't, wasn't a, lar- a larger man. He just had the little you know, dad belly that a lot of us are known for in our 40s. Uh, but he made it through okay and everything was fine. After watching videos online, you can go to YouTube and look at the videos and and see people's experiences uh, of of making their way through, sometimes struggling their way through, people turning and passing through sideways with their back and their chest touching rock at the same time. I wonder if I myself would have the guts to do that. I don't know. Maybe, Maybe someday I'll give it a try. In this morning's sermon text from Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is going to talk about another narrow pass In the conclusion of his famous Sermon on the Mount, there in chapter 7, we'll be on page 776, if you grabbed one of our guest Bibles in the back there, I'm going to be reading just a couple of verses, uh, verses 13 and 14, labeled appropriately enough in the NLT, the narrow gate. Matthew 7, verse 13, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. With these words, Jesus begins the the final sort of climactic concluding portion of his sermon, And his sermon was a revolutionary message. If you have taken the time to read the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 through 7 and taken the time to to consider it and ponder it and and ask the the Holy Spirit to reveal to you just the depths of what is being uh, shared through this probably most famous sermon of Jesus's, you'll see that, that it is indeed revolutionary. But the revolution of it rests on the fact that the whole sermon's value depends upon the identity and the authority of the preacher himself. Apart from that, it's just, well, it's not just another collection of wise things. Of course, these are, these are inspired words from the mouth of the Lord himself. But, they, but even in the sermon, those words hinge upon the one speaking them. 
consider some of the, the outrageous claims Jesus will make as, he, as we go through the section here. You'll see that these are not just wise, insightful words or just ethical maxims. No, Jesus is expanding and explaining upon the idea of the kingdom of God, what its nature is, what its character is. It's, it's, a, it's a sermon that calls the people of God or the people that would seek after God to put God first and to place all of their lives under his lordship and care. And look at some of the things he says about himself in verses 15 to 20, where he claims to be the one who alone can declare the fruit of one's life, good or bad. Imagine that, someone who claims the authority over your life to declare the fruit of your life, good or bad. He claims in verse 21 that God is his father and that people can call him, not the father, can call Jesus Lord. Verses 22 and 23, he claims the authority to be able to reject people on the day of judgment. And in verse 24, he, he takes that Old Testament understanding of God as a rock and he applies it to himself. And he says, anyone who builds their lives, the house of their lives upon me and upon my word will stand. And all of these claims taken together give meaning to these verses we've just read a moment ago in verses 13 and 14. Because only the one who has the identity and the power and the authorization that Jesus claims for himself, he alone is able to decide and, deter and to determine who can pass through the gate to life and who does not. The Sermon on the Mount is not a collection of just good suggestions. It is a manifesto of a kingdom from another world that is arriving in the present. It's breaking into the world in the person and lordship of Jesus. Now, this idea of a kingdom is a, a central preoccupation of Matthew all throughout his gospel. If you go from uh, the very first few times it's mentioned out of the mouth of John the Baptist, and you go all the way to the end of, of the letter, you'll find that the, this reference to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is mentioned by my count at least 51 different times in just 28 chapters. Do the math. That's a pretty frequent reoccurring theme. And it's not just in a cluster here or a cluster there. It's spread pretty uniformly throughout the gospel as a whole. This theme occupies a, a, a central place within the Sermon on the Mount itself, starting right there at the introduction in that section we know as the Beatitudes, which begin and end with a statement about the kingdom of God and who it belongs to. Well, it belongs to those, he says in verse 20, whose righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees. Meaning only those who have an, a true inner righteousness instead of just a mere external righteousness, one that you present for the world around you, one that is, that is attained by, by doing all the right things and saying all the right things and going through all the motions and putting on the presentation. No, Jesus says the ones who belong to my kingdom are the ones where righteousness comes from the inside out. It is a kingdom that is concerned with and connected with the reality of the heart, not what's on the surface. In chapter 6, verse 10, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for the coming of this kingdom. It is something to desire and plead for God to establish in the world. It's something in verse 33 of that same chapter that Jesus says is worth seeking above all else. But it begs the question, what is this kingdom and how does one become a part of it? Well, from Genesis to Malachi, all of the Old Testament is, is explicit in its confidence 
in these three things concerning the kingdom of God. Number one, Yahweh alone is sovereign ruler over all of creation. There's never a verse in the entirety of the Old Testament that has any doubt or lack of confidence or certainty in that reality. Yahweh is Yahweh alone. And he has created all things, and he oversees all things through his sovereign providential care. That's conviction number one. Well, number two is also the conviction that the world is not as he would have it to be. Now, you might be saying, well, doesn't that cast doubt upon his sovereignty? Well, we know that the answer is no, because God, in his permissive will, has permitted other wills. And as a result, you have the introduction of evil in the world, that which is counter to the will of God. So God still is in control of all things. He providentially cares for all things. But in his providence, he has permitted people like you and people like me to exercise our own will in choosing whether we will follow the, the lordship of God, surrender to his sovereignty or not, or go our own way. Conviction number three is this, and this sheds a lot of light as to what was going on in the day of Jesus and the, and the, the types of expectations pe the people of God had for people like Jesus when he came on to the scene. Conviction number three of the Old Testament is, yes, Yahweh is sovereign over all creation. All in the world is not as, as he would have it to be. But thirdly, a time is coming when his rule would be more fully and openly established. You hear it in the words of Zechariah in chapter 14, 9, as well as other places, where Zechariah says, the Lord will be king over all the earth. Yes, he is sovereign ruler. Yes, he has not left his position of authority over all of his creation. Yes, he oversees all things. He is in control. And yet the nations don't honor him as such. But on that day, there will be one Lord. And his name alone will be worshipped. And so when Jesus steps onto the scene and, and, and his predecessor, John the baptizer, begins talking about the kingdom, and then Jesus steps onto the scene and begins talking about the kingdom, that this idea takes center stage. And it's not viewed as something that's just coming soon. Oh, okay, well, Jesus has showed up to tell us the kingdom, which seemed once very far off and far off into the distant future, is now a little bit closer. That's not what, what John the baptizer and what Jesus are saying. It's not just a little closer than it was before. No, in, in their words, it is at hand. Which, mean, which means it's arriving now. It's breaking into the world in this person. Not in some final absolute sense that people expected. And indeed, that was the expectation, that there was some sort of final climactic arrival of a kingdom that would liberate God's people from all their oppressors. Well, that day is coming, but not this day. No, the kingdom is coming, but in, in an inaugurated way. It's coming in a particularized way. And Jesus brings clarity to that in his sermon. He says the kingdom of God, the one that I'm speaking of, refers to the rule of God's promised reign in the heart. It's not Jesus is showing up in, 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 you know, in the middle of, the, of, the, of a geographical location and starting to stake ground that belongs to God, forming some sort of political empire by which all the nations would be subdued. That's not what Jesus arrived to do. No, he came to, a, to, to put stakes 
in the hearts of people. Right at the source of where the rebellion lies. Right at where the problems exist in the world. If you want to fix the problems in the world, you don't show up with a stick, you show up with a cross. And he shows up to bring God's reign, God's rule, right into the hearts of sinful, rebellious people. And it is there, at the core of what is broken about us, that rebellious people like us can allow God to begin making things right. It's there at the, at the center of who you are that God begins to fix what is broken in his world and to make all things new. Yes, a day in the future is coming when all peoples from all places will, will come and acknowledge the sovereign lordship of God. But in Matthew's gospel, the arrival of Jesus signifies the opportunity for men and for women and boys and girls to enter into the sphere of his kingdom and its rule and its blessing and its protection today. And so, Jesus presents the world with a choice. And it's not an easy one. Maybe for some it seems easy, but it's not if you really stop and think about it. It's, it's a choice between two roads with two very different destinations. And these roads, as Jesus is describing them, are not operating parallel to each other. Now, these, these are roads that are moving in completely opposite directions. I don't know how many of you know, but currently Patrick Dale and his cousin Matthew are taking a road trip around the country. I don't know if you knew that or not. They, they have a van that they outfitted to be like a, like a camper, and they've got solar panels for electricity and a running water in the back. It's phenomenal how they've engineered this, this van to just go and just take weeks, maybe months, and just while they're young and don't have anything holding them back, just go and, and do what many of us would consider something like a bucket list kind of thing. And they're going to go tour the country and see all the sites and do all the things. It's really exciting. I'm really happy and proud of them for doing something bold and, and daring that uh, they may never have another chance to do. That I was the last person they came to see before they left. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe it's, good, maybe it's an honor to be the last person, but maybe it kind of just shows where I fit on the like, totem pole of their life. Um, they probably stopped and talked to some strangers first before they came to me. I was the last one. But I was thinking, you know, when they left, when they pulled out of here, they could have gone one of two directions. Well, I guess they could have gone, I guess they could have gone across the bypass out into the, the wild wilderness of, you know, to the Chappanoke area over there, I guess. But getting on the, the bypass, they, they could go one, or, one of two ways. You know, they could, they could go, like, they could go to New York or they could go to Miami. Okay, well, let's be honest. Who these days wants to go to either New York or Miami? <laughs> that's probably not a very, that, that's two undesirable destinations. That's probably not the best uh, metaphor here for what we're trying to talk about. All right, let's imagine for a minute they're leaving Toledo, Ohio. And they can go south on 23 towards Columbus, or they can go north on 23 towards Ann Arbor. One of those destinations is a wonderful place to go. The other one, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> That's a little more like what Jesus is talking about here. We have two roads leading two very opposite directions. And the people on those roads travel in different ways, it is true. Some of them travel more quickly than others. And you might be one here this morning saying, I, I know the road I've been on, and I, and I wish I'd been moving faster on it, but for whatever reason, it's kind of slow. I get it. 
There's nothing about the speed with which one is moving on the roads. And also, some people travel on these roads a little straighter than others. Some do a little bit of wandering, maybe a little bit of a bypass here, maybe a a pause for, for, for some reason or another. But you are on a road with your life. And as Jesus is saying, that road is going somewhere, and the destinations of those, of those two options are not the same thing. And you, don't be mistaken, you are on one of those roads. And that's one of the hard things about the things that Jesus is saying, because he doesn't leave some sort of comfortable, you know, neutral middle way or third option, right? He doesn't say there are three roads, really. You know, there's one that's leading to life and one that's leading to destruction. And then there's another one. Maybe it's your road. It's your, you take your road. I have my road. You know, they have their road. And that's not the mouth of Jesus. He leaves no comfortable middle way. And that's why people, I think, have a hard time with him. Because he doesn't operate in the gray. No, Jesus, he doesn't operate in the subjective. Jesus is laying out very flatly this option or that option. You can't be neutral. You can't be passive. You can't just be stationary and just kind of sit back and observe objectively what's going on. No, you will be on and you are on one road or the other. And because of that, Jesus doesn't allow us to just sit back and and enjoy his teaching, does he? (laughs) We don't get to, to read the Sermon on the Mount and come to the end and be like, golly shucks, that was a really nice lesson. I just really appreciate, you know, his honesty. I really appreciate his wisdom. Those words are really profound. Jesus doesn't allow us to do that, does he? No, he presents his manifesto. He says, here, here is the very nature and character of a kingdom that I am, I am bringing into the world. I am the embodiment of God's rule in the world. I am the one through whom you have you alone can access this kingdom and you're either heading towards it or you're heading away from it. And one leads to life and one leads to death and you have to choose. Which road will it be? Now the easy one is the wide one. Reminds me of that Seinfeld episode when Kramer adopted a strip of highway. Maybe you remember that, maybe you don't. And one of the first things he did was take black paint and he blacked out the, the dotted line that separated the two lanes to make it just one giant lane. And when Elaine traveled down the road, she's just swerving around, taking her sweet old time. She said, ooh, wide, wide lanes. This is luxurious. And she's just meandering down the road at her own pace. This is the wide road that Jesus is talking about is, is wide because it's easy and because everyone is heading down it. And the question I have is I come to a text like this and I'm thinking about what Jesus is saying. Why is it so easy? Why is it the, why is it the one that everyone wants to go down? Well, I think it's because this, this wide road represents the default disposition of people. People who choose, want to choose and insist on choosing their own way. People who claim autonomy and personal independence, people who claim the right for themselves to reject the claims of God upon their lives. And that's the default posture of people, people that that want to be responsible for themselves and in charge of themselves and don't want anybody else telling them what to do, not the least of which some guy in the sky 
And so that's the easy way for us to go because that's what comes naturally to us by default. And people always prefer the path with least difficulty, one that doesn't require self-denial or taking up a cross, one in which we find an abundance of company. There's something about the herd mentality that strikes right at the the essence and the core of sinful man. We're, we're, We're told by Paul, we're slaves to the world. Slaves to the the ways that people in mass tend to move. We move with them. We fall in line. It's natural. There's an ease to it. To just go with the flow. And if we listen to Jesus, he's going to tell us the problem with this path is not so much its journey as its destination. You know, you could rent a, a tube and have a great time effortlessly floating down the Niagara River. I bet it'd be exhilarating. I bet it'd be, you'd have so much fun. You wouldn't have to do a thing. All the work is done for you. But you and I both know how that ends, don't we? You and I both know how that ends. I think that's kind of like what Jesus is saying here. Yeah, it's, it's easy to join the masses. It's easy to go your own way. It's fun to live your life, your, your best life, your way, to live for yourself and, and indulging in all of your pleasures and, and in all of your appetites. And it's, it's natural to you and effortless for you to deny God's rightful claim upon his lordship over your life. But how's that going to end? Jesus says, that's a road that leads to destruction. And the NLT says, that's a highway to hell. But praise be to God, there is another, harder, but better way. A more narrow road that fewer travel, and with greater difficulty. It is the straight path of faith. One that carries many afflictions, many temptations, many reproaches. Do not be mistaken. There is no cheap grace at this church. There is no easy believism. We believe that there's only one way to be saved, and it is through Jesus Christ alone And to be a believer in him is not to just say, I intellectually assent to certain things about him. To be a believer in him is to be a disciple of him. To follow him. To surrender to his lordship. Not just receive his, his grace and what he has done for you. You receive that, absolutely. But then you respond to it with all of your life. That is the the picture of, of the Christian life that comes from the scriptures. And the Christian life is challenging. It's hard. And anyone who tells you it's not is either a fool or a liar. It's not easy to follow Jesus. Because following Jesus runs contrary to our natural inclinations. That's why few follow him. The parable of the sower over in chapter 13, if you have your Bibles open, you want to flip over a few chapters. The parable of the sower really illustrates this in really interesting ways. And I love chapter 13 because it's that transition point in Matthew 
where Jesus moves from these really straightforward teachings, very cut and dry, very clear, and then when it's, when it's met with you know, pushback and at some level some rejection and some hard-heartedness, he switches here in, verse, in chapter 13 to begin, beginning to speak in parables. And for those of you who were at uh, Bible study last Wednesday night, we, we analyzed that pattern. It's a pattern that we see throughout the scriptures where God's prophets, God's spokespersons, you know, speak very straightforwardly to God's people. And then when it's met with rejection, there's, a, there's this shift, this movement to symbolic language, more emphatic language, language that has the, the effect of either drawing you closer to God and hearing, ha, putting in the effort to understanding what's actually being said, or your heart gets hardened and you push farther away. And that's what's happening here in chapter 13. And his first parable is this parable. He's talking about the parable of the, the soil of people's hearts. How is the seed of God's word received in your life? And in this parable, there's four different options, three of which are bad and one of which is good. I think that's interesting. It sounds a lot like there's, there's a broad road and there's a narrow road. There's three quarters of the soils here are bad. One of them alone is good. Look at verses 19 through 22. He says, the seed that fell on the footpath, that's the soil number one, represents those who hear the message about the kingdom and don't understand it. And so the evil one comes and snatches away the seed that was planted in your hearts. By the way, my wife sent me a really interesting article. I haven't read the whole thing, but I've, I've read the majority of it. I have the gist of it. And one of the lines that I took from it was really interesting. It had to do with how we are listening to, say, a sermon on Sunday morning. He said, you may, you may check out when I get up here to speak. I can't say that I fully blame you. I can't bear to listen to myself on a recording, a video. I'm, I mean it. I'm not trying to be funny. I cannot stand the sound of my voice, and I can't, I, it's cringy to me. All right, but that's just me. Maybe, maybe, you feel, maybe you feel that sentiment. I don't know. Maybe you don't because you're here, so there's hope. But many people, they, they, they come to church, they love the music, they love the fellowship, they love the snacks, they love the ambiance, they love all the social things that come with it, but when the preacher steps to the pulpit to preach, they check out. And this article made the statement, you might check out, but the devil never does. And he's just waiting for when that seed comes down, snatch it. To snatch it. To snatch it out of the minds. To snatch it out of the hearts of people who have checked out. Because the soil of their heart is not ready for it or resists it or rejects it altogether. Do not be mistaken, church. You may not be paying a lot of attention to me, but someone is who has your worst interest in mind. Thank you, Ike. Verse 20. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. Thank you, God, for this wonderful message. Hey, by the way, the, the Billy Graham event last week was a tremendous success by all accounts. And you can come, it's so easy. I've been, to, I've been to dozens of those types of things with lots of prayer and lots of preparation, lots of powerful preaching, wonderful music. There's a spirit there. There's, it's like a little taste of heaven. But then you leave and you go back into the world. And unfortunately, 
there's probably a good number of people who stood to respond to this message by Franklin Graham and received it with joy and were elated to hear this news that God forgives even them, that God loves even them no matter what they've done. But the minute they get back in their car and wait two hours to get out of the fairgrounds, now I'm preaching, Ike, they go back into the world and guess what's waiting for them? All the stuff. All the stuff. And Jesus says, there's a certain type of soil in the heart of man that the moment it gets back in the stuff and it's faced with the hardship, it's faced with the persecution, the seed is snatched away. And thirdly, the seed, verse 22, the seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word But all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth, so no fruit is produced. Oh, I love the gospel of Jesus. I love the good news, but oh boy, do I sure love all my things. I sure love being comfortable. I sure love having a name having a reputation. I love the little empire, the little kingdom that I've built for myself here. Out of my hard work, I put the effort into this. I built this. Thank you, God, for forgiving me for being a dirty, rotten scoundrel with my heart. And I love you and I accept that, but I want this too. The majority of the soils on which the seeds of the gospel fall represent hearts that are too dull, too closed off, too distracted for the seat, for the seed to take root. Church, you cannot take the narrow road that leads to life if your primary concern is your comfort, your ease of life, or if you cling to the things of this world. Put back in your minds for a moment that, that opening little uh, picture I painted for you about fat man squeeze. Imagine being burdened with all the things that, that are yours and trying to pass through a 20-inch wide crack in the wall. You going to make it through? Are you going to make it through the narrow gate that leads to life if you have a death grip on the things of this world? The Dutch theologian Erasmus said this, I believe it's on your screen. Nothing is to be found on this narrow road that flatters the flesh, but many things opposite to it. Poverty, fasting, injuries, chastity, sobriety. And as for the gate, it receives none that are swollen with the glory of this life. None that are elated and lengthened out with pride. None that are distended with luxury. It does not admit those that are laden with bundles of riches, nor those that drag along with them the other implements of the world. None can pass through it but naked men who are stripped of all worldly lusts. Mm. Jesus will go on in chapter 19 to proclaim that the narrow gate can only be approached with the simplicity of, of a child. 
Not with the cares or complexities or commitments of an adult, but the simplicity of a child. For to such as these, he says, belongs the kingdom. You know, in Jesus' day, a child had far less position or stature in, in the community than, than even we would witness here today in our world. A child in Jesus' day brought nothing to the table to offer in any kind of exchange. A child owned nothing. A child possessed nothing. A child could claim nothing about them of what they have done or what they possessed. They had no merit. They had no privilege. A child could only ever receive. That's it. That's the only thing a child brings to the, to the table in any type of exchange or transaction. They bring the ability to just simply Receive. They have no claim on anything. And Jesus says, childlikeness, this is how you can enter into the kingdom of God. There is no other way. There's no other way. It is the, it is the requirement. You have to leave everything else at the door. And so it doesn't matter who came to Jesus. Even the most powerful among the people, the most privileged among the people, the most capable people, the, the producers, the ones that the world deemed the ones that had the most value or the most contribution to society, the ones that everyone looked up to, the ones who had built whole empires for themselves. Didn't matter who they were, everyone that comes to Jesus can only enter the kingdom he brings if they can receive the invitation the same way that the most powerless people do. And what is true for them is true for us. There's, a, there's an equalizing factor to the cross of Christ. Those who are low are brought up. Those who are higher are brought low. And we all stand before him the same. And we can only enter into his kingdom. And his kingdom can only enter into us if we approach him like a child with simplicity, with faith, with nothing to offer. Nothing we can claim for ourselves. None of our merit, none of our positions, none of our possessions, none of our power. All we can bring to him is ourselves. That's it. And so, the narrow road and gate demand that we renounce all dependence on anything of this world and cling exclusively to Jesus. Jesus, who's not only the gatekeeper, Yes, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, as we come to this concluding section, Jesus does claim the authority of the gatekeeper. But you and I know from the rest of the gospel and the rest of the gospels and the entirety of the scriptures that point to him, we know he's not just the gatekeeper. He is the gate itself. You don't just need his secret passcode to get in. You need him. The grace and the gifts and the blessings of God are not detached from his son. They are his son. When you come to Jesus, you're not just getting the thing he did for you. You're getting him. That's the good. Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the kingdom of God. Jesus is your life. He doesn't give you those things apart from himself, because he is those things in himself. <laughs> He's the only way to the Father. He's the door of the sheepfold. He is the true vine, in whom alone branches may be incorporated and given life. He is the only way to access the kingdom with all of its blessings and all of its benefits, 
nothing in our hands we bring simply to Jesus Christ we cling. Church, will you choose to take the narrow road? Will you choose to follow Jesus? Will you choose Jesus? Yes, the road less traveled is hard. It's demanding. It's costly. But I'm quite confident that the destination is worth it all. Will you do whatever it takes to follow him today? Not tomorrow, not next week, not when things are going your way, but today, in the midst of your hardship, in the midst of the challenges and the struggles. It's real easy to say yes in here. It's a lot harder once you go outside. But that's when the rubber meets the road. That's when it counts. In Luke 13, someone asked Jesus in verse 23, Lord, will only a few be saved? I mean, you can sympathize with that question, can't you? Because <laughs> we hear these teachings and we're like, okay, wow, that's a really, that's a really hard teaching, Jesus. When the narrow type of road you're describing seems really narrow. So will only a few be saved? It's a, it's a, it's a good question. Listen to his response. Work hard. Work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom. For many will try to enter but will fail. When the master of the house has locked the door, it will be too late. Are you working hard today to follow Jesus? Doesn't mean are you working to earn your salvation, but are you willing to put in what it takes to belong to him? Today is the day to do it. Today is the day to forsake everything for him. Today is the day to move against the currents of the world. Today is the day to welcome the rule of God over your hearts and to enter into his kingdom through the only door that leads to life. Would you stand with me for prayer? I happened to be going through some old notes of mine. I don't even remember why. The Lord let me there, led me there somehow. And I came across a quote from Dennis Kinlaw. It was, uh, a recording was played at his funeral. And in that recording, he said this, and it stood out to me because it was so profound and, and it was so appropriate for this morning. He said, we are made for more than citizenship. And by that, he means citizenship of God's kingdom. And that's what we've been talking about today, becoming belonging to God's kingdom, entering into God's kingdom and his kingdom entering into you. But he says, we're made for more than just citizenship. We were made for sonship. Isn't that amazing that the very king is also a father? Do you know him as father today? Can you say, God, you are my father? Jesus said it about himself. And what Jesus says about himself, he wants you to say about yourself. And if you've never been able to say that before, today could be the first time. If you respond in faith, if you say yes to Jesus, Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you for all that you offer. Lord, I say yes to you. God, would you help every person in this room to be able to say that today? To let go of the things of the world. To, to say, I will no longer 
go with the flow. I'm going to say no to the stream. I'm going to say no to the, the, the masses that are moving in direct opposition to you. I will stop this day and I will turn around and I will go on the narrow road. Lord, would you make that happen in someone's life that needs it here? And for those of us who are already on that road but are tempted to, to look back over our shoulder and see what's behind us or to look left and right and, and see alternate routes and bypasses and detours, Lord, help us to keep our eyes centered and fixed on the road that is straight and narrow. And by the power of your Spirit, the chief blessing and benefit and mark of your kingdom's presence in our lives, Holy Spirit, would you give us all that we need to, to keep our eyes centered and fixed on Jesus. Because it is hard. It's hard to live for you in this world. It's hard to, to walk according to the Spirit when we're still in these fleshly mortal bodies. It's hard when everyone around us seems to be enjoying themselves while we, while we struggle. Lord, fill our hearts with strength and with joy in perspective today. May we be a people who continue on that road that leads to a gate that opens up to life that never ends. Lord, the, the destination is worth it all. Seal that in our hearts this morning, I pray. In Christ's matchless name, amen. If you want to respond this morning by coming forward and praying, you are welcome to do that. You can also pray where you are or just sing the, the closing song. But if you want to know more about this and want to, someone to talk to, come see me or see Pastor Richard. Where did Richard go? Where is he in here? Did he slip out? No, he's sitting in. Richard's in the back. I'm in the front. There's someone somewhere that you can come talk to. And we would love to welcome you into the kingdom of God if you never, have never done that uh, before. Uh, respond as you feel led. Pastor Jeff.